Today's podcast is brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. Welcome to the first ever episode of Kaleidoscope, the art of language and inclusion. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Uh, we're your hosts. I'm Max. And I'm Lisa. And before we get started today, I'm really excited to talk about our intro music by jazz artist Matt Savage and the Groove Experiment. Matt is an amazing artist. Um, we featured him in issue 62 of the magazine. I would encourage everyone to give him a listen and check him out at savagerecords.com. Now, before we get started here, I'm just going to give you some information about our company and what it is we do. Um, So I am fairly new to the organization. I started about four weeks ago, but we are United Disability Services and we're located in Akron, Ohio. Our mission is to provide and support inclusive life enriching options through person-centered programs and advocacy. Now, when it comes to Kaleidoscope, um, it's a publication of UDS and we began back in 1979. We really pioneered the exploration of the experience of disability through the lens of literature and fine arts. Our work includes fiction, personal essays, poetry, articles, book reviews, and various artistic media, including art, drama, and theater. Lisa, could you tell me a little bit more about Kaleidoscope and what it is we do? Absolutely. Kaleidoscope started as a project of a vocational services program and has really grown into a publication with an international following. Uh, the publication expresses the experience of disability through a variety of perspectives, including individuals, families, friends, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and educators, among others. Our goal is really to challenge stereotypical, patronizing, and sentimental attitudes about disabilities. So Max, in today's world, conversations regarding diversity and inclusion are at the forefront of national debate, but these conversations often don't include individuals with disabilities. Kaleidoscope has dedicated itself to amplifying the voices of those who may otherwise be left unheard. An examination of the experience of disability lends itself to conversations that increase the understanding of issues of disability and solutions to creating more inclusivity in schools, the workplace, and our communities as a whole. The arts are often a reflection of cultural norms and an important means by which people with disabilities can express themselves and be heard. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that awesome explanation, Lisa. In today's episode, we'll be sharing a sampling of work from our most current issues of Kaleidoscope. So today, Max, we're going to start with some pieces from issue 83 of Kaleidoscope. The spoken word is so compelling, so most of these pieces are being read by the authors themselves. First up is an excerpt from Sterile Rooms, a memoir by Cheyenne M. Heinen. Groggy from anesthesia after surgery, Cheyenne told a nurse she loved her, thinking it was her mom. She recounts interactions with people in different rooms as she struggles to break through the frog of medication, pain, fear, and sadness during her days in the hospital for that surgery and another one the following year. I love you, I said on August 31st, 2017. I said those words before I could make out who was in front of me. I love you too, sweetie, said a kind, unfamiliar voice. She laughed as she said it, but what I said wasn't funny. I really loved her. I was certain she was my mom. 
The unfamiliar voice wore navy blue scrubs and she had an old face. Her hair looked like she had stuck a fork in a power outlet. Reading glasses hung on her nose and she smiled nicely at me. A cold thumb grazed over the surface of my hand where a long needle slid into a protruded vein. There was something maternally comforting about her touch and presence, even though I could barely see the details of her face. Can I hug you? I asked the lady in blue scrubs. She excitedly yet so gently hugged me without wrapping her arms around my neck. Her perfume confirmed that this wasn't my mom, but her kindness was elusive. I laid at an angle on a stiff twin-sized bed and the room looked white and foggy. I could make out other people sitting upright in their beds too. I had just laid down for a medically induced nap after an argument with a technician about my tattoo of serotonin. It had occurred to me long after the age of 18 that my serotonin tattoo could be controversial in this way. I realized that people may think I like tripping out on drugs so much that I had it tattooed on me when it was just a symbol of happiness. I realized that people like this technician would argue with me over it, but I still wonder why he chose a time when I was actually tripping out on drugs to argue about it. You have to have some professional approach to serotonin, he said while I was getting tired under big lights. His assertion compelled anger out of me, but my body was too weak to have a full argument with this guy. Well, I'm not a drug addict. I snapped at the technician while he hooked prongs into my head and different parts of my body. Before asking me about my tattoos, he told me he was there to monitor my brain activity while I was under anesthesia and he'd monitor my neurological responses through prongs stuck into parts of my body. I didn't say you were a drug addict, he said with an uncomfortable laugh. The room went black after that, and I never saw that guy again. Patient is a 20-year-old female with Chiari 1 malformation. I overheard a voice say from behind a curtain. I'm not sure if this was the first curtain or the second curtain, but I usually heard that rehearsal of words from behind a curtain. Patient had a decompression this morning with Dr. Feldstein, the first curtain. I was too sedated to comprehend if the voice was speaking to me or to someone else. My limbs were too heavy to move and my mouth was so dry that I didn't make an effort to ask who was there. Dr. Feldstein was my neurosurgeon, but I was unsure of where he'd put me. After a few moments of going in and out of coherence, a figure slid back the curtain surrounding wherever I was. Through the fog that still hung in the room, a younger lady in seafoam green scrubs and a mouthful of braces exchanged words in hushed tones with the nurse who I thought was my mom. The lady with braces said hello to me and asked me how I was doing, but I didn't say hello back and I didn't tell her how I was doing. My body was too heavy to respond to questions. I met this woman before my argument with the technician. She had put me to sleep and I liked her for her braces. I usually never trusted young doctors. I especially didn't trust the doctors who sought to put a scalpel to my head. This one was young and friendly, but knowing she was an anesthesiologist was freaky to me. She, if she wanted to, she could turn the dial just a tad too far and kill me. But this one was nice, didn't seem murderous, and she had braces. For some reason, I have a lot of respect for older women who decide to get braces. Two people appeared in front of me through the fog. They could have been my parents, but I already thought the nurse was my mom and she wasn't. I wouldn't let my eyes fool me. The woman in front of me had a stream of tears coming down her face and the man next to her was expressionless and seemingly ignorant of the circumstances. I love you, I said to these people, who I was almost sure were my parents, 
and the lady cried even harder and reciprocated my emotions with, I love you so much. Her booming emotions made me laugh hard and it hurt. It hurt so bad that I stopped laughing and went back to silently loving the strangers in this unfamiliar room. I told the strangers that I loved them again as my body felt heavy and I went silent with sleep. I woke up on November 26, 2018 in a room like the one I woke up in on August 31st, 2017. This room was dim though. I think it was late in the evening. This time I knew who was in front of me. My mom sat closest to me and my dad sat next to her. My mom crying for the same reason she had cried last year and my dad expressionless and selectively ignorant as usual. I didn't wake up saying I love you to any strangers and I didn't laugh this time. I remembered this feeling too well and was angry that it happened again. As soon as I woke up in the dim room, I wondered why I couldn't feel my tongue and half of my face. It felt like someone punched me in the mouth. It was so dry that it was hard to swallow and any muscular movement of my mouth or tongue gave me a wincing pain. There was also something that felt like a chewed piece of gum in my throat. It made me gag. Did someone drop something on my face? And there's something stuck in my throat, I asked a nurse who I couldn't really see. No, it's probably from sleeping face down on the tube, she said. I opened my mouth for her to look at what was in my throat. She said it was a lymph node that I'd gotten caught during intubation. After that, she ran fingers across my shoulders and down my arms and asked, Can you feel that? I couldn't feel it. I saw that she was touching me, but I couldn't feel her fingers running over my arms. She asked me to wiggle my toes and I just couldn't do it. I stared at my feet and begged my brain to wiggle my toes for me, as if I'd been trying to cast a spell on them. But the magic in my toes didn't happen that night. I knew this neuro exam well at this point. I remember thinking about how my second surgeon prepared me for this. You could become paralyzed, he said to me after being two hours late to my appointment. You could get hydrocephalus and that could be life-threatening, he added. All I could say was, okay, since I didn't know what else to say. So I thought I was paralyzed and that's why I couldn't feel her touch. I had mentally prepared for paralysis, especially after my new surgeon included the word death in his rehearsed list of risks prior to my now second operation. Look in this mirror, the nurse held a mirror to my face, and I opened my mouth to look at what hurt so bad. A nickel-sized black and blue bruise on my tongue was what made everything in my mouth sting. You have a bruise on your tongue, probably from the tubes of your teeth. Are you sure no one punched me in the face while I was sleeping? I asked her again, knowing those doctors and nurses wouldn't have punched me while I was out cold. No, she laughed. No one punched you. On the first night, a nurse around my age took care of me and looked like an old friend of mine. She had brown hair that was held high in a ponytail, a headband pressed to her hairline, glasses, a small, nice smile, and an engagement ring on her left hand. I remember she referred to her man as her fiancé. She often said, my fiancé this and my fiancé that. I looked down at my phone that told me it was late evening. The big room I was now in was darker than, than the dim room, and I heard subtle beeps of other people's monitors. I shared a room with three people who also had neurological ailments. I started to feel that familiar pounding in my head. Much worse this time, and the laugh I shared with the nurse intensified the pain. I felt like I was walking around with a film over my skin since I hadn't showered for two whole days. 
I did my business while the nurse talked about ugly sweater, about an ugly sweater party she was going to with her fiance. We were talking about where she could find an ugly sweater. I stood up, let her wipe me like an overgrown baby that I was, and told her to check Amazon. I told her my friend bought an ugly sweater from Amazon and I bet she could find something good there too. I remember looking into the mirror, just about to turn on the faucet to wash my hands. The nurse also facing the mirror, still talking about ugly sweaters. I said, why is my face so yellow? And she said, what? The room went black and I felt light. My head fell back first and the rest of my body followed. I remember not feeling any pain as my fragile head abruptly fell back, just lightness. I don't remember anything after the blackness came over me, but I was certain I was dying. My eyes were open, but all I could see was black nothing. A loud buzz in my ears hindered my hearing. I vaguely heard a woman shouting through the buzz in my ears, I need some help in here. I counted three voices, all of them female. One I assumed was a nurse who looked like my friend who was just talking to me about ugly sweaters. The two others, I can't tell you who they were, but I remember the buzzing in my ears amplified and I heard a woman shouting my name. She sounded old and I think it was her that squeezed, her hand that squeezed mine. Cheyenne, please wake up. Can you hear me? A voice said. Hydrocephalus, hemorrhaging, some other medical terminology that I can't regurgitate from my memory. Dr. German's rehearsal list of risks replayed in my pounding head and limp body and death. When I made the decision to have the surgery again, I came to terms with dying. He said the words and I accepted them. I even processed the words with my therapist, Irma. I'm sure he had to say the word for insurance and legal reasons, but it was a real possibility at that point. I decided I could either live a shitty quality of life for the rest of my existence, or I could try this again and hopefully live a better life, but potentially die in the process. I'd accepted that. I'd accepted that I could be dying on the bathroom floor at Albany Medical Center. Cheyenne, can you hear me, sweetie? I think she has low blood sugar. When was the last time she ate? Um, I don't know. Two people talked through the lingering blackness and buzzing. I thought my eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything but blackness while my limbs pulsed. The painful pulse in my limbs told me that I wasn't dead. I was very much alive. I stroked my right thumb over the top of an old soft hand that squeezed mine and said, I want my mom. I remember feeling small and childlike and helpless when I said that, but I really wanted my mom, who was absent. I know she slept silently in her bed while I groaned in pain and blindness on the bathroom floor. In a room with three people, I'd never felt so alone. Next up, we'll be hearing a poem titled Nesting from Emily Edwana. Now with all the great pieces that come in the kaleidoscope, we often have a hard time picking which ones to in the magazine or in the podcast but this one was pretty much universal we hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did there are birds nests in my hair i had hoped to attract hummingbirds but no fluttering wings arrived to provide an adequate excuse for the monstrosity growing in tandem with the aching of my arms and the trembling of my hands which don't appear to realize i am only 22 and should not require help to brush the birds nests from my hair the last piece we'll be featuring from issue 83 is another creative nonfiction offering. It's an excerpt from The Brightness of Neurology by Carrie Jade Williams. 
I have to say personally, Carrie has the best accent, uh, which I think makes the piece even extra in enjoyable. So living in Ireland, Carrie Jade Williams was misdiagnosed for years before receiving a diagnosis of Huntington's disease. A prompt by her doctor to write a bucket list triggered an addiction to an unconventional drug that she reveals in her compelling piece, The Brightness of Neurology. First, I'd just like to say a huge thank you um, to Kaleidoscope for um, their commitment to um, giving writers like me with disabilities and long-term illnesses the opportunity to share our work with the world. Um, so here we go. Here's a, a piece of my essay titled um, The Brightness of Neurology. I have a secret addiction, not to drugs or drink. There's no rehab for a girl who spends all her time online looking at holiday destinations, researching trips, exotic places full of mystery and possibilities, hours oogling the tempting photos, which with a simple click, a fix can be bought. With fentanyl and oxycodone, the media always questioned, when did it all begin? Well, I know the exact time and date this seed of addiction was planted. The neurologist had, land, had handed me a pen and told me to write down a bucket list. The appointment started out as usual. MRI results, blood tests, my reflexes being tested. Since the eye test, which had resulted in the optometrist sending me to the hospital and admittance to the neurological ward, I'd adapted to the drill. After years of being told and tested and treated for mental illnesses that never seemed to make sense to me, Seeing a doctor who performed tests with results I could physically see was a bizarre experience. No more, in my opinion, but hard facts based on collated data. You've been misdiagnosed for years, the neurologist says as he passes a light in front of my eye. This isn't in your head. This isn't in your head. I roll the words around on my tongue. The light box above his head shows two images. One, a neat, smooth brain next to another that I can tell has something wrong with it. Cracked and damaged. If I were a betting girl, I'd put odds on the latter being mine. Well, it is technically in your head. Your brain to be exact, the doctor says, as he points at the image that he has identified as the organ housed inside my skull. It's as though God or someone planted a seed in my head that instead of sprouting out has curled in on itself. So what is the matter? Do you remember the genetic testing we did? I nod. Unfortunately, you have something called Huntington's disease. I'm relieved. I've never heard of this Huntington's, so it can't be that serious. The doctor, sensing my positivity emanating from me, snuffs it out. Imagine Parkinson's meets ALS meets Alzheimer's. In one disease, that's what you have. There's no cure. I learned that a moment later. Few treatments as I refuse stem cell on principle and I've been misdiagnosed for eight years by a psychiatrist who didn't bother to run any blood work before handing out diagnoses like sweets. My optimism, stretched paper thin, cracks as the question demands an answer before I've recognized its need. How long have I got? He fudges the answer, won't commit to a timescale, nothing exact, but he encourages strongly that I use the next three to five years wisely. That was such a wonderful story, Carrie Jade. Thank you for sharing it with us. Next up, we're gonna be hearing a poem titled Water Lilies by Lucia Hasi. It's gonna be read by the Director of Adult Day Services, Lana Stryker. 
I drift amidst inspiration, a bud floating, waiting to bloom. I'm patient for ripples of the ink's flow to stir me gently. These words surrounding me, a permeating of essence, an opening up and sharing of inner beauty calling, the eyes of the world to my place of fragrant peace. Thanks for reading that for us, Lena. Next up, we'll be hearing an excerpt from a creative nonfiction piece titled Operating in French by Judy Cronenfeld. During a last minute trip to France, the 70-something grandmother with osteoporosis tripped over a curb and went careening down onto the concrete. The misstep was quite the mishap for Judy Cronenfeld, who had to navigate her way through a medical emergency with very little French in her repertoire. She travels with a sense of humor and gratitude and with those, was able to embrace the adventure. My hunger increased by visions of pan au chocolat and pan au raisin. I hurried down the staircase of our modest hotel. My Frenchless husband, who had no intention of contributing to the order, some paces behind. We'd awakened quite hungry on this fourth and last morning in Brittany, but had packed our suitcases before considering food. I suggested we buy some pastries at the boulangerie just across the street and enjoy them on our little balcony overlooking the pleasantly scruffy garden, making do with the tea and coffee packets and the small electric teapot in our room. We were leaving as soon as possible for Normandy, where we would join our foreign service son and his family for a precious few days the raison d'etre of our relatively short and somewhat last-minute trip to France, our most beloved European destination. They had been on their own vacation in Europe and were making their final stop at a French country gîte before returning to his post in Phnom Penh. No traffic on the little street I began to cross, almost running, eyes to my left on the goal, though at well over 70 with arthritis in one knee and a knee replacement in the other, as well as osteoporosis and a history of fractures followed by long-worn casts in my last decade and a half, arm, leg, and knee, as well as a couple of hairline others. I don't ever really run. There was a bay on my left, on the far side of the street, where shoppers park their cars, sometimes leaving them with motors on while they leapt into the boulangerie and out again with their baguettes. Perhaps for that reason, I didn't expect the sidewalk to jut out into the street in front of me and to my right. I tripped over the curb, was bowled over by gravity's non-negotiable shove, the elapsing second long enough for me to think, I can pull myself upright, oh no, not again, and my right hand twisted palm skyward and smashed into the concrete when my body fell on top of it, again. Using my left hand and arm, I somehow got my lower body into a sitting position on the sidewalk. My right hand ripped off its arm like a steak held up by a butcher. The skin was peeled off and pebbles and grit clustered in the bloody open gash. My instincts told me the wrist, at least, was fractured, yet I hoped against hope for a mere deep wound. I held my right arm with my left and rocked with pain, tears sprouting from my eyes, my husband now in front of me, shouting, What happened? What happened? 
and I felt pitifully embarrassed and chagrined to have turned in an instant from a passably adroit traveler into a doddery American tourist who had plopped into people's lives on this mild French morning on so quiet a French street. As if summoned directly by my pain and fear, people appeared around us in action. One man was on his cell making a call, presumably for help. Another, clearly versed in treatment for shock, offered what looked like an old blanket. Our hotel host, summoned by unseen social networks, quickly strode across the street and squatting by my side, asked if I wanted an orange juice. I fended off the blanket, approved the juice to come, agreed mentally without talking to the man on the phone that whoever he was calling needed to arrive. Catapulted out of our balmy European escape, I was in it now, the emergency, the awkward, annoying, faintly ridiculous situation. Our ample and leisurely dinner the night before at our hotel's restaurant gastronomique, a meal of several courses further punctuated by minuscule amuse-bouche, moistened by a palpably good rosé and enhanced by the evident joy and pride of the staff, whose pleasure in hosting definitely increased ours in eating, now seemed like a distant, rosy memory of a kind of experience not likely to be repeated. I was no longer simply a traveler on vacation, strolling to meals or for a drink in the mild summer weather, enjoying the deep, restful, siesta-like quiet of a tiny French town, fostered by shuttered windows and broken only by the basilica's bells or little blooms of chattering people emerging from behind closed doors. I was no longer a playful linguist as I had been with our charming and charmable hotelier, contending about which one of us got to practice the foreign language in the manner of French conversation that always seems just a few millimeters short of outright flirting. His English was better than my French, which is well pronounced, but lacking in extensive vocabulary or great ease with verb tenses. So his ceding to my wish, at least some of the time, had felt like part of his affable hospitality. It was far too familiar, this feeling of my body defeating and disappointing, disappointing me. I knew the drill. Yet at this moment, I wanted to say to our hotelier, squatting near me again, juice in hand, as I sat on the sidewalk, Alas, I'm afraid the wrist is broken, with a rueful smile that would lift me some millimeters out of being pathetic. But was brise the right word for a fracture, or the right word at all for broken? And what in heck was the word for wrist? I didn't think I'd ever had the occasion to use it. Poignet? Or was that some kind of knife? And what was I going to do about the fact that I really had to pee? Before I could attempt to resolve these quandaries, the French fire department, the pompier, arrived. I was helped onto a gurney inside their small truck by an attractive young woman whose boyfriend, I soon found out, was the driver. My husband secured our room in the hotel for another night 
The siren was turned on, and we were on the road to the nearest adequate hospital, in a town of about 50,000, some 20 kilometers away, my husband following in our rented car. The young woman in the back of the fire truck with me was focused, concerned, personable. Her help felt small-scale, unofficious, perhaps not frequently enough given to become routine or boring for the givers. But to convey to her, across the language barrier, my urgent need, which at this moment vied with the pain in my throbbing, meat-limp hand, seemed more uncomfortably personal than speaking English to an English speaker, because my grip on connotation, having never said anything more than, pardonnez-moi, où sont les toilettes, was uncertain. Was the verb pisser, which I settled on, vulgar or not? Should I have chanced fair pipi, or was that only for two-year-olds, or even urinée? But wouldn't such formality make me sound bizarre? The young woman, woman offered a bedpan, and I tried to explain to her, with a number of left-handed gestures, that I was afraid I couldn't manage lying down and one-handed as I was. Hoping I sounded as polite as I meant to be, I asked for her promise to lead me to Les Toilettes as soon as we got to the hospital. And so we chatted about where I was from in California and what I was doing in France and where she'd gone when she visited Les Etats-Unis. Everyday non-substantive chit-chat not driven by necessity, even with a broken wrist and burning bladder, I wasn't half bad at that. An hour of dual discomfort later, including a transfer from the Pompier gurney to the hospital's emergency room gurney, questioning, paperwork not filled out by right-handed me, and finally I was briefly allowed to stand and be led to the promised relief. The young woman departed quickly. I thanked her sincerely, waving my left hand. I was wheeled to an examination room where eventually someone cleaned the wound and lightly bandaged it. And after a while, a doctor entered and asked me the usual questions about my injury and also atypically inquired about my work. He was relaxed and talkative in the way that some doctors cross-culturally seem to train themselves to be, perhaps because of the high tension of their jobs. Or perhaps it was a bit interesting for him to talk to une étrangère in this regional hospital. I mentioned that I was a retired teacher of English literature and creative writing, that I had written a book on Shakespeare and some books of poems, surprised that the French words for all of this were actually flowing. Finally, under medical care, perhaps I relaxed a notch and stopped second-guessing myself so much. The doctor picked up on the Shakespeare with evident interest and knowledge, remarking that the playwright was un miracle, coming almost out of nowhere, as if we were, and as if we were having a conversation over glasses of wine at some intellectual soiree, I told him I understood exactly what he meant, that Marlowe, for example, born in the same year as Shakespeare, was nowhere near as complex or profound a playwright. On I went with my little French script of literary pleasantries, feeling the tang of pleasure as every third or fourth word that issued from my mouth surprised me that I knew it, and this in spite of my fears. 
Would I have to have my first surgery after a fracture and miss any or all of the few days my son, daughter-in-law, and grandkids were going to be in Normandy? I was a woman over 70 with a broken hand, a train wreck. So we have yet another beautifully written poem by T.L. Murphy. Um, I think the poem speaks for itself. Uh, please enjoy. I remember you, the hair, the eyes, even the smile, but he isn't here. I knew you when you were small, but you aren't him. You look the same, an older version, a little gray. You have the memories, some at least. You even sound like him at times. You have the hands, you wear his shoes, but you aren't him. He's gone, you're here. You even have his parents. It's startling how much you look like him. I tried to cry about it. You look so much like him. We sit, we talk, discuss old times. It's a miracle. You must miss him too. My son, Jake, suffered brain injury at the age of nine as a result of tubercular meningitis. Jake is 42 now. And for the longest time, I expected the nine-year-old Jake to come back. And it wasn't until I finally accepted that he was never going to come back that I was able to grieve for the son I lost and to embrace the son that I had gained. Next up, we have a poem titled Magenta Fleece Sweatpants by Diane S. Morelli. Please enjoy. Laundry, washed and folded, sits in two baskets. A pair of magenta fleece sweatpants lay atop each of the stacks of clothing. The smaller of the two garments belongs to my toddler. I dangle the pants in front of her. I feel like a matador taunting a cornered bull. She bolts backwards and declares, I want my princess pajamas. I tell her she is Sleeping Beauty. I smile to assure her that I'm no beast. In reality, I am Cinderella and need to get myself off to work. I remind her today is Wednesday. Her newest friends, Sophie and Aaron, are already there, waiting for her at daycare. I pass a cool, damp face cloth under her chin, and with it, wash behind her ears, dab beneath her nose, caress her flushed cheeks, and wet her hairline a bit. Mid-swipe, she grabs the rag and puts it to her lips. She bites on the washcloth until it's sucked dry of saline and sadness. Then she tosses it across the room into the dog's water bowl. The drama has ended. Together we laugh. Neither one of us feels defeated. On her own, my young child picks out a matching top that looks quite nice with her magenta fleece sweatpants. Her arms stretch overhead. She's waving her hands in anticipation. Yesterday, Miss Cindy told her that after morning stretches and story time ends, she'll be the one to play the tambourine. 
On Monday, she made a paper airplane. I told her that it's built sturdy enough to carry the two of us all around the world. As I planned the trip for next weekend, my little one said, we can't go without grandma. I crashed down hard from the aborted magic carpet ride. I'm right back where I started. Laundry, washed and folded, sits in two baskets. A pair of magenta fleece sweatpants lay atop each of the stacks of clothing. The larger of the two garments belongs to my mother. I dangle the pants in front of her. I feel like a caballero, bleeding at the behest of a bull. Mom looks confused. I place her clothing on her lap. She says, what do you want me to do? I smile, then I say, it's time to get dressed. You should put your pants on. And while mom and I aren't fairy tale princesses, we're starring in a saga that doesn't have a happy ending. No matter what I do, I feel like a beast because my mother doesn't know what I'm talking about when I say today's Wednesday. She isn't aware that her newest friends, Elizabeth and Joe, are the people who come into our home to keep her safe while my daughter and I are out. I pass a cool, damp face cloth under her chin and with it wash behind her ears, dab beneath her nose, caress her flushed cheeks, and wet her hairline a bit. Entertained by visions and songs and voices that nobody else can see or sing or hear, she clutches at her version of reality. Mom tells me that she was at a fancy restaurant today. She had no money on her and was so happy about being fed without paying the bill. Mid-swipe, I stopped washing her face. I bite down hard on my lower lip. Then I toss the washcloth on the floor. The drama repeats itself again and again. I turn away. She doesn't see me cry. Thankfully, only one of us feels defeated. Next is an excerpt from a personal essay written by Jackie D. Rust. In Step by Step, My Journey Through Sepsis, Rust counts her blessings throughout this emotional essay as she shares her near-death journey that includes hallucinations, possible amputation, infection, pain, grief, and coming to terms with a new normal as she struggles to make her way My husband and his mother carry me to the car and drive me to the nearest emergency room. I'm placed in a wheelchair. I hear EKG and think, this is going to cost so much money. And then, nothing. The doctors tell my husband I'm going to die, but I don't know this. I'm too busy fighting to stay alive. The doctors can't find the source of the infection, then stop trying. It's more important to keep me alive. Words my husband Steve and my niece Sarah have to hear. Blood pressure, 67 over 40. Blood clots, infection in her blood, induced coma, ventilator, kidney failure, dialysis, strep, septic shock, feeding tube, strep of unknown origin, white blood cell count more than 30,000. 
My husband rails against the system. He had taken me to the doctor the day before. The doctor diagnosed me with the flu and sent me home. Hours are critical in fighting sepsis. I have lost 24. The doctor tells my husband the reason I'm alive is because I am so healthy. I am alive. My first blessing. Blood pressure drop so extreme. I need a drug to save my organs. But this drug doesn't always save extremities. My second blessing. I didn't lose any fingers or toes, arms or legs. The tips of my fingers turn dark in color. The doctors say I will probably lose the fingernails and I may lose the tip of my left pinky and the tip of my second to last toe. Leg pain so severe, the doctors use opioids to induce a coma-like state. I don't remember the pain, my third blessing. Hallucinations and delirium follow. Entire episodes of Futurama, a show I'd only seen bits and pieces of and didn't even like. And I add pornographic episodes. Klingons, the raspberry, the raspberry and lime colored prayer blanket given to me by the hospital weaves through my mind. Escaping to see Steve, but my mind saying he's going to kill me. Heartache, white glasses, people drift in and out. My mind splits. I know people, then I don't. It's a war to see which side wins. I yell at Steve and Sarah, go home. And then so glad they come to visit. I bring my niece to tears. I like your pink hair extensions. Then I hate your pink hair. Then get out of here. Get the F out of here. When a friend says she'll pray for me. I was so upset by saying this, but Steve told me I never said it. A nurse jump, jump, jumping outside my room. When I later ask her, she says she hadn't. A woman in an apron keeps walking around in my room. My next lucid memory is April 15th. When I ask Mark, my ICU nurse, why everyone is talking about Easter. Easter is a couple weeks away. He says to me, Jackie, Easter is tomorrow. You've been in a coma. I think about this, losing 11 days of my life. Mark, I've been down the rabbit hole. Yes, he replies, you have. Easter morning, I'm so excited because Steve is coming, and I know he is coming, and I know who he is. But as the morning goes on and he's not here, I feel myself slipping. I'm losing him. I try hanging onto his face his memory to him, but I lose him. He walks in a stranger. The woman with the apron walks into my room. She is real and not a hallucination. I know you, I tell her. She replies, I should hope so. Yesterday you said, I'm going to kill you. Solidity, sanity, stability come slowly. 
People still drift in and out. I ask my brother to get me a glass of water because I don't trust Steve. I'm sure he gets my water out of the toilet. The nurses tell me I get to sit in a chair. This is good until they roll me from side to side to put a sling under me. They attach the sling to cables hung from the ceiling, a higher lift. It lifts me out of the bed. It's scary moving through the air. It sets me in the chair. Words I have to hear. You have to eat. PTSD, possible permanent dialysis, rehabilitation facility, amputation. Funny how I accept that I might lose the end of my left pinky and left toe. I even told people I might lose it. But when the doctor says possible amputation, I fall apart. Amputation means cutting it off, not just the euphemism, I might lose it. Pain, scream, something's trying to eviscerate me. Terror, waking up, not knowing where I am. Calling the nurse, not knowing where I am. Calling for Steve, not knowing where I am. Oxycodone causes both gas pain and night terrors. I take myself off. Fourth blessing, the extreme pain that put me on oxycodone is gone. I move into a transitional rehabilitation facility. I'm not going home. How did I think I could go home? I can't even stand. I need clothes. For two months, the hospitals have clothed and fed me, and now I need clothes. But I can't go home and get them. I can't walk. I can't even stand at the parallel bars. I give directions to Steve and his mom where to find underwear. I have to wear underwear and clothes. Do I re remember where everything is? Will I remember how to put everything on? Will I be able to put everything on? They move me. No ambulance, just a wheelchair transfer vehicle. Steve's mom is waiting for me. My new home. I want my old home with my cats and my bed and Steve in the bed with me. No adaptive silverware though. I'm using spoons and forks like everyone else. The OT gives me a stick with a hook to help me put on my pants. I don't like pants, never did, but now I really don't like them. I have Steve take the pants home and bring skirts, full skirts, so I can still do PT. A problem, my shoes don't fit. My feet are too swollen. My feet were never swollen before. Steve and Joanne shop and bring them in too tight. Shop and bring them in too tight. Finally, a Velcro closing bedroom slipper fits.
PT shows me a machine of torture. Long arms reach out to grab me. It will help you stand. The smiling oh-so-helpful OT informs. Stand? I can't stand. My legs won't hold me. Which is why we have the stand aid. It pulls you up and holds you. When you're tired, you will sit back down. I'm tired, I tell them. You haven't stood up yet, she answers in her patient OT voice. She places a belt around my back. It is attached to the stand aid. She pushes a button. The machine pulls. I rise. Panic rises. I'm not ready. Please put me down. But they don't. I stand for one minute, 20 seconds. They're pleased. I'm relieved to be back in my wheelchair. My room is on the ground floor. I open my windows. Birds, green, fresh air. What a treat. The Hoyer lift, the other machine of torture, is now giving me a gift. It puts me in a lazy boy. Almost like I have at home. Three and a half minutes on stand-aid. My reward, no more Hoyer lift, just stand-aid to move me. Sitting in my lazy boy, I have to pee. I press and press my bell. I'm told the stand-aid is busy. I've worked so hard to not pee in my pants. Steve is with me. I tell him to get a straight back chair. I squirm onto the chair. He turns it and I wiggle, twist and slide my butt onto the bed. He brings the bedpan. I am so pleased with my ingenuity. The nurses are not. I tell PTOT and they are not pleased with my ingenuity either, but they decide no more standing. I'm ready for a transfer, transfer board. I learn to do it myself. I can move myself. I go from the bed to my chair, from my chair to the wheelchair. I'm mobile. Since there is no more stand aid, I now have to learn how to stand on my own. Wait, you tricked me. I thought losing the stand aid was a good thing. PT wills me up between the parallel bars. No, 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 I can't do it. I can't stand. PT doesn't believe me. They never believe me. I grab the bars and pull. I sit. See, I can't do it. But somewhere inside me, I want to do it. A strong woman would do it. So I pull and pull and stand. I'm standing. I stand and stand. Take a step, PT tells me. Whoa, what? My foot won't lift. I cry. Fear of failure, fear of falling, just fear. Thank you. When I first became ill and was in a coma, my niece took notes. 
I wrote this to fill in the blanks and to help me heal. I also hope it helps others find their strength to heal. Matchmaker is a fiction piece by Courtney B. Cook and will be read in its totality by members of the UDS staff. This is a very sweet piece and uh, we all enjoyed it immensely and we hope that you will too. Uh, Courtney B. Cook's Matchmaker is a lighthearted story about a perceptive young man who is keenly aware his two friends have an interest in each other before they're willing to admit to it. This endearing story is sure to put a smile on your face. Up a little more, you've almost got it. I stretched my hand to the right, shifting my weight even more to my right foot, which was balanced precariously on a tiny rock climbing hold. I felt to the right, around the curve of the wall, and my hand found the next hold. I smiled, readjusting my grip, and let go with my left hand. Gravity pulled me to the side as I let my foot slip off of the other hold, and I swung around the wall. The hold dug into my hands as my full weight was shifted to that one hand. I heard Jeremy laugh below. You know you could have found the foothold over there first, right? Pulled myself closer to the wall, stopping my swing. Where? By your right knee. I found the foothold, and after climbing up a little more, I finished the wrap. I swung up on top of the wall and sat on the edge. I was glad this was a spot where I could sit on top of the wall. My smile was so big, it felt like it was going to split my face in half. There's nothing like the feeling of finishing a new route. Finally, I sighed and jumped back down to the mat, and Jeremy slapped me on the back. Nice job, Duncan. Thanks. That was a fun one. I wiped my chalky hands on my shorts. What time is it? Time to head to school if we want to hit the shower before class. That early in the morning, the gym was quiet. I heard the occasional thud of someone landing on the mat under the bouldering wall. And farther off, there were a few climbers yelling commands as they belayed up the taller walls in the main area of the gym. It was the perfect time to climb. A rhythmic thudding started as we got closer to the bench, and a wet nose found my hand. I scratched behind the soft dog ears. Good girl, Lucy. I rubbed her head, and she twisted her head around to lick my arm. She watched you the whole time you climbed. Nice job finishing the route, by the way. Thanks, Mrs. Sanderson. I stood up, and Lucy jumped to her feet next to me. Did you set that route? <laughs> How do you always know? My elated grin returned. You always throw in something interesting. Like the stretch around the wall. It was really fun. Jeremy joined the two of us as I slipped on Lucy's harness. We'll be back after school, Mom. There was a scuffle as Mrs. Sanderson pulled him into a hug, as she always did. I grabbed my duffel bag. Have fun at school, boys. Jeremy and I gathered the rest of our gear and headed out of the gym with Lucy leading the way. The gym was only a few minutes walk away from the school, so we were able to walk at our own pace. The streets were almost as quiet as the gym was, with only the occasional car splashing around through the puddles in the road. A few people passed us too, and some of the regulars said hi to all three of us. Lucy carefully guided me around all of the puddles on the sidewalk, and I couldn't tell if it was for the benefit of my feet or her paws. The smell of rain soaked everything around us, making everything smell clean, but it still didn't drown out the smell of the coffee shop we always passed. One more block. We stopped at the usual intersection, waiting to be able to cross, and familiar light footsteps hurried our way. Hey guys, and Lucy. Kate, my best friend since kindergarten, called. She added as she came to stop next to us. Lucy's tail tapped against my leg slightly, but that's all the greeting Kate got. Lucy was on duty after all. You're running late. 
Jeremy added. We started across the intersection as the cars began to stop. A few more seconds and we would have left without you. Oh, sure you would have. How was the wall this morning? It was a blast. There was nothing more freeing to me than when I was on the rock wall, especially on the old routes I'd memorized. The familiar ones where it was just me and the wall, no guide needed. We missed having you there. Our conversation continued all the way to school, with Kate and Jeremy bantering back and forth. I hit a grin as I noticed that Kate was moving closer to Jeremy as we walked. Whether she did it on purpose or not, I wasn't sure. I noticed Jeremy's steps were slowing, and I knew for sure he wasn't slowing down on purpose. He laughed at something Kate said, and it was his crush laugh, as I called it. The one he unconsciously switched to when he was talking to a girl he liked. I wondered if they realized they liked each other. I wouldn't be mad at all about my two best friends dating. I knew Kate would be concerned about that, and I knew Jeremy would be nervous about admitting his feelings to her. He told me before that he felt like the newcomer to our little group, but he was beginning to feel much more at home, and he wouldn't want to risk the change, knowing him. Well, I made a decision. My friends were dorks, and they were going to need my help. My phone vibrated in my pocket with a quick seven-beat pattern. I cleared my throat, interrupting their conversation. <clears throat> uh, we might need to pick up the pace a little bit. I hinted, tapping my wrist like I was wearing a watch. You're right. Jeremy sped up. A few minutes later, we made it to school, and Jeremy and I took off to the boys' locker room. See you in homeroom, Kate. She gave you a thumbs up. I nodded, tilting my head in his direction, doing my best to look innocent and not mischievous. So, you gonna ask her to prom? He stopped in his tracks, and Lucy and I kept walking. I struggled to keep a straight face as he hurried back into step with us, his footsteps more indignant. Uh, why would you say that? <laughs> You realize I've known you long enough to tell when you like a girl, right? The question is, do you know you like her? I don't. Kate's just one of my friends. That would be weird. Shrugging, I brushed my hand through my hair. Then remembered I probably still had remnants of chalk on my hands. I don't know. Relationships that start as friendships always seem to turn out better in the long run. Or at least, they have a better chance of working out well. I think. Yeah, but that would be awkward and weird, since we've been friends for so long. I raised an eyebrow. Only if you make it weird. And, and she's taller than me too, so there's that. His footsteps sped up slightly, probably trying to get to the locker room faster. Finish before we get there. <laughs> now you're just fishing. Idea sparked in my head. I mean, you're probably right. She's not exactly your type. You always go for shorter girls. I mean, she's not too much taller than me. And she's really nice. And cute? Yeah, especially when she laughs. And, oh no, you're right. I do like her. How do you always know? Now he's exasperated. Blind intuition, I said with a smirk. So are you gonna ask her to prom? It's just a couple weeks away. Look, I don't know. Kate's awesome, and we've been talking a lot more lately, but I don't know if she likes me. Jeremy opened the door of the gym, holding it for me and Lucy. I mean, you've known her longer than I have. Wait. Do you know if she likes me? I shrugged as Lucy guided me into the locker room. We were hit with a wave of humidity from the showers. You'll never know unless you ask her. I'm not playing matchmaker. I'm just making sure you know that I know you like her. Before Jamie could reply, a shower curtain screeched as someone yanked it to the side. Hey, there's a girl in here! A male voice hollered, then drifted into laughter. Hey, Lucy! 
I smirked at the familiar joke and patted Lucy's head, and Jeremy gave me an elbow in the ribs that clearly said, we're not through with this. I rushed through cleaning up and left the locker room before Jeremy finished yelling a see you later over my shoulder as I left. I mostly wanted to escape any more questions about Kate since I really didn't want to interfere too much, but I also wanted to do a little snooping before homeroom, and I knew Kate always went to class early. Lucy led me to the stairs and into the hallway. It was starting to get louder, with lockers slamming and chatter beginning to rise. Lucy guided me around the groups of students that were starting to congregate in the hallway. A few people called out to us, saying hi, although there were a lot more people saying hi to Lucy. Her step perked up, accepting the praise, but still focused on her job. Show off, I teased her, then added an instruction to find Kate, just in case she wasn't in homeroom. I didn't need to worry, though, because Lucy guided me straight to the classroom. The door was open, so Lucy guided me straight in. You guys are here early, Kate said from her normal spot in the middle of the classroom. I can hear her pencil scratching across a paper, probably her journal, her homework for next week. I get Lucy to guide me to the desk next to Kate, then let her know she's off duty. She immediately leaves to greet Kate. Traitor. Then again, she's known Kate almost as long as she's known me. I slid behind the desk. So what are you working on? I'm just writing in my journal. Why are you here so early? Since you weren't at the wall this morning, just want to hang out. Were you helping your mom? Yeah, she had to leave for work early, so she asked me to get Abby to daycare. You know, you're an awesome big sister, right? Abby thinks you're the coolest person on the planet. And I say that because that's what she told me last time I babysat for you guys. Kate laughed, making her chair squeak as she shifted and pulled something else out of her backpack. <laughs> well, I'm sure she'll find out I'm normally eventually, I'm sure. I tilted my head up to the ceiling, trying my best to put a thoughtful expression on my face, tapping absentmindedly on the smooth desk. Kate, I've known you for a long time, right? I mean, yeah, since I tried to explain colors to you in kindergarten. So, can we be honest with each other? And we know each other well enough to know when something's going on. Yeah, is everything okay? I raised an eyebrow. Like when you told me in second grade that you liked William and you wanted to hold hands with him. Why are you bringing this up? And remember that time a couple of years ago, I told you to stop liking Matt Herman because he was a jerk when he wasn't around girls. Duncan. And you didn't even realize that you had a crush on him either. Okay, fine. Yes, I like Jeremy, okay? I pasted an innocent look on my face. Why, Kate? I had no idea. And I'm shocked that you would think I'd stoop so low as to try and manipulate you into telling me that. <laughs> I don't know how you always figure things out like this. I mean, I haven't been exactly subtle, but you can't see the way I look at him? No, but I can feel the way you look at him. How long have you known? Eh, only a couple of days. Ha, huh, I figured out how I felt three weeks ago. I'm slowing down my old age. So now that you found out, I assume you're going to start playing matchmaker? held up my hands defensively. Nope, not this time. Not when it's my two best friends. There was a pause, and I can tell she didn't believe me. I also knew I had brought up one of her doubts, messing up our friendship. Seriously, trust me, I'm not matchmaking. I'm just being my nosy self. Lucy's tail thumped. Kate must have started petting her. Yeah, but that's the thing. Even if something did happen somehow, it would be awkward for you. I don't want you to feel like a third wheel. Perfect. Now to dismiss her fears. 
I shrugged. Well, maybe I wouldn't mind. Besides, what would you be missing out on if you didn't go for it? Another pause. I knew her well enough to know that she would make up her own mind about it. I don't know. Shrugged again. Well, it's not my place to make a decision for you or anything. And you don't even know if he feels the same way, right? No, and you're not going to talk to him about this, right? I nodded, raising an eyebrow. Of course not. Like I said, I'm not doing any matchmaking. You guys have to handle this yourselves. Sure, we'll see how long that sticks. The bell rang, saving me from having to reply. I called for Lucy to lay under my desk as students filed in, and I did my best to keep my face neutral. Later after lunch, I made my way through the halls to my least favorite class, English. I loved reading, but I'd rather just enjoy it and not have to analyze it. I was trying to convince myself it wouldn't be too bad when I heard Jeremy calling my name. Lucy and I paused, and Jeremy stopped next to us panting. <sighs> Man, I always forget how fast you walk. It's hard to catch up with you. I, I didn't think we were going too fast, but you can blame Lucy if you want. I tilted my head, hearing the slight sound of him bouncing like he always does when he is nervous. What's going on? I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask Kate to prom. Punched him in the arm. Nice! So what's your plan? Oh, I'm just going to ask her after school today, you know, just... You don't have a plan, do you? Well, you know her. She won't want anything too complicated. She always makes fun of those big promposal things. Well, yeah, but you could put some effort into asking her. I mean, I don't want to embarrass her or go too crazy if she doesn't like me in that way. That'd be awkward for both of us. And I mean, I'm going to be buying her chocolate or something. Okay, that's good. But maybe you can make it more exciting somehow? I mean, it, it, it's up to you. Just, just maybe. If you're going to go for it, you should commit. I'm not saying fireworks or a hot air balloon, just something memorable. And you're a great guy. If she doesn't like you back, then she's missing out. I don't know. Maybe you're right. I'll see what I can come up with. The bell rang overhead, making me wince. Gotta go. I'll see you after school. The rest of the school day was uneventful. I met up with Jeremy and Kate in front of the school once we're through, as usual. You joining us this time, Kate? Yeah, but Jeremy's ditching us. My mom asked me to pick something up. I'll meet you guys there. It shouldn't take me too long. Kate, Lucy, and I headed off to the rock wall. We decided to take the long way, cutting across the park behind the school. That path took longer, but it was a nice day, so we didn't mind too much. We even stopped for a few minutes and let Lucy play in the dog park. Kate kept an eye on her for me. Here's a tennis ball. Thanks, as I took the ball from her. It was rough in my hands and a little slobbery. I made a face. Lucy was panting in front of me and I tossed the ball in the air made a solid thunk when she caught it. Nice! After a few more minutes, we called Lucy and headed to the rock climbing wall. It didn't take us long to put on our climbing shoes and hit the wall, leaving Lucy at the front desk with Jeremy's mom. We mostly worked on a few easier routes, waiting for Jeremy to show up. I convinced Kate to try the route I had finished in the morning. I listened to the sound of her climbing and winced at her sudden yelps as she fell off. Kate picked herself up off the mat. How did you make it around the wall in that one section? My center of gravity was way off. I tilted my head. I wasn't the most helpful person to climb with since, you know, I can't see people climb and see what they do wrong. But I knew Kate's style from how Jeremy described her climbing. And same with him, based on Kate's description of his climbing. I just swung to that other hole. But you might try finding the foothold first. Kate was in the middle of trying the route again when the bell over the front door rang. Jeremy? 
asked Kate. Yeah? I turned toward the door. Over here! Hang on, I'll be there in a few minutes. I turned my attention back to Kate. I can hear her struggling a little bit. Then a light scuffle and the sound shifts around the wall. Yes! You got it! I grinned, glad my voice helped. A few seconds later, and I heard the familiar sound of someone pulling themselves up on top of the wall. Finished! Nice job! Thanks! Hey Jeremy, what are you doing up here? Someone came up next to me making the mat shift underfoot. Jeremy brought flowers and chocolate on top of the wall. My heart jumped in excitement. What? It was all his idea to surprise her when she finished her round. We moved closer to the wall so we could hear what they were saying. You're amazing, and I don't know if you feel the same way as I do or not, but do you want to go to prom with me? Silence. I feel panic growing. Is she smiling? What's going on? I called to Jeremy as quietly as I could. I don't know, she's covering her mouth. Um, Kate, I know this is really weird and awkward, and I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, Jeremy, I'll go to prom with you. Yes! <laughs> that was really dumb, wasn't it? I should have asked Duncan to help me plan it so it would be so lame. It wasn't dumb at all. I loved it. I think we're coming down, so you might want to move. We moved out of the way and Mrs. Sanderson patted me on the arm. He probably doesn't want his mom hanging around, so I won't embarrass him in front of Kate. I'll see you on your way out. Kate and Jeremy dropped down onto the mat a few moments later, and Kate immediately gave me a hug. So you really didn't play matchmaker, huh? We did it all ourselves. I held my hands up in a mock surrender. I promise. I, I, I had nothing to do with it. And that's how I got your parents together. So mommy and daddy wouldn't be married if not for you? Nope. Pulled her onto my lap. Uncle Duncan helped them fall in love. Will you help me find a boy to marry someday? Did you say something about boys? Daddy, Uncle Duncan says he's going to find me a boy to marry. Uh, not for a very long time, he's not. Why are you talking about that anyway? Uh-oh. Busted. He was telling me how he made you and Mommy fall in love when you asked her to prom. Is that so? I seem to recall you didn't do any matchmaking and we handled it ourselves. I leaned back in the armchair with a mischievous smile. Well, it all depends on how you look at it. All right, that concludes our first ever episode of the Kaleidoscope podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Join us next time as we continue the exploration of the experience of disability through the lens of literature and fine arts. And once again, today's podcast was brought to you by PNC, supporting early education, racial and social justice, and economic development through programming within the communities we serve. Be sure to listen, read, share. Submit, sponsor, and support at kaleidoscopeonline.org.